You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 406 and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Tanner Johnson is an engineer at Flowdash. As part of a small but growing startup, he and the team wear a lot of hats. In addition to full stack engineering, Tanner is focused on all things growth, sales, and marketing at Flowdash. You are not unlikely to catch him deep in a Wikipedia rabbit hole outside of work. Nick Gervasi is the co-founder and CTO of Flowdash. Nick has always been fascinated by technology and began programming at a young age. Prior to founding Flowdash, he was an early engineer at Gusto, where he was first introduced to Ruby on Rails, and he's been a huge fan ever since. Nick lives with his wife and two children in Walnut Creek, California. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Tanner and Nick. Thanks so much. Thanks for having to be here. It's so great to have you two as a pair. So, of course, Tanner, what is your developer origin story? Ah, that's a great question. I think I was a relatively late bloomer in software engineering growing up. I didn't really play much video games. My brother was the one that was on the the video game console. So I didn't get a lot of exposure to that kind of thing until later. It really happened for me sort of late in college. I started off studying pre-med and did that for two and a half years. So I was well into my junior year until I got sort of my first exposure to computer science. And I was taking a class called biological clocks. It was a really cool class, small class. And we were tasked with taking a really large data set. Well, maybe not in the big data world, but it was about 60,000 plus genes, sort of RNA, time sequence data. And we were all tasked with coming up with a small set of genes that define a cell cycle, sort of a circadian rhythm for this type of cell. And I was like, wow, how are we going to do this? So we ended up using this cool set of programs, running it on Python. And at the end of it, we defined those genes. And it was so cool because I didn't have any programming experience going into that class, but I spent most of the time Googling, how do you do this? How do you do that? So I really love the ability to self-serve my learning and then also apply a computer science to something that I was already interested in. I was working in a biology lab at the time, sort of a wet lab where we were running experiments with worms and the feedback cycle was so long Whereas now the feedback cycle was how long does it take to run this program or or run a test? And so that was really exciting for me just to get the answers quicker. So I really loved that. And I kind of thought of it as dating a little bit. You know, pre-med was nice. It was convenient, usually pleasant, but I wasn't really in love with it. But when I started on that class and then went all in on computer science for the rest of college, So that led me to majoring in computer science and then started off my first software engineering job after that. That is fantastic. As someone very early in their career, I wanted to be a genetic counselor. So I just love your story so much. But of course, we want to kick it over to Nick. What is your developer origin story? Yeah. So I got into software development at a pretty young age. So my father is a uh, structural engineer. So generally not a lot of programming, but you do take 
some introductory programming classes and, and one of those was in basic. And so when I was in grade school, I remember pulling me over to the computer and he had a basic interpreter open in, in MS-DOS and he typed in a few expressions to add numbers together. And I was just immediately fascinated by how quickly computers could calculate. And I said, well, because I had just learned how to do like long addition in grade school. I says, well, what if we, you know, what it's, let, let's make the numbers bigger. Let's make them even bigger. And it's just the fact that it just kept giving me the exact answer almost instantaneously was what hooked me. So I think early starting with a basic, it was a quick basic in, in DOS at the time, eventually wanting to learn more about programming in Windows. So I, I taught myself Visual Basic. As a teenager, I uh, was really interested in video games. So I, I taught myself C plus on the graphics side, some OpenGL and DirectX. And this was always a self-taught hobby of mine. It wasn't a commit to it as a career yet until uh, much later. I'd actually gone to university as a mechanical engineer, because outside of computer science, I was also really interested in math and physics and kind of came to the conclusion, okay, when it was time to go to college, should I study computer science or should I study, should I study me mechanical engineering was my other interest. And when I thought about it, I said, well, there's so many people in industry that, that program professionally that don't have the degree. While I probably can't build airplane engines without a, an accredited university degree, ultimately led me to mechanical engineering. But since then, yeah, I've worked in software. I started my career out in Redmond, Washington, worked for Microsoft for a few years, uh, worked for a number of startups after that, and I started Flowdash just a couple of years ago. That is an incredibly great story as well. And of course, I want to stick with you, Nick, because I want to dive into Flowdash. So first of all, tell me about the mission. And of course, for the listeners, what is the technical stack? Absolutely. Maybe I'll start from the origin story there as well. So prior to starting Flowdash, my co-founder and I were both working at a startup. And while we invested a lot of engineering time in building the core application, the, the main user experience that our customers worked through, we also found that we kept a significant amount of our engineering resources on internal tools, things for our customer support team to help our customers, things for performing repetitive tasks. And as we began to scale, we found that we had to build a lot of primitives, like being able to assign tasks to each other, being able to track where work was in a pipeline, being able to define a process, just seeing how much engineering time went into building these features that really weren't unique to the business and the problem that we were solving at that company is what inspired us to see, hey, maybe we can build something in the no-code space that allows other companies to build these types of internal tools much faster with less engineering effort and even ideally empower non-engineers to change those tools over time. So that was the inspiration. And if I had to describe Flowdash, Flowdash is a ultra customizable work management platform. And it's really well suited for companies that have a lot of manual repetitive tasks behind the scenes. So to give you an example, if you're a fintech company, you're onboarding businesses on your platform. When a new business comes online, there's a lot of information you want to verify. As, is their bank account valid? Have they provided all the appropriate identification? And does their address check out with where they are? Because, you know, a lot of this goes into ensuring there's no money laundering or fraud on the system. And so those types of tooling are the processes that Flowdash makes a lot easier to build, both from the engineering perspective and easier to maintain by non-engineers going forward. So what does the technical stack look like? It sounds like you are built on Rails, correct? Well, we had no choice. Uh, no. So the decision to use Rails was actually a pretty obvious one to us. My co-founder and I had both used Rails for more than six years previously at our previous startup. And I think really early on in a company's life, it's 
really important to choose your battles. And for us, building a product that solved the real problem for our customers and really understanding that problem and, and building the best solution possible was our top priority. And we didn't want to be distracted trying to learn technologies that we weren't familiar with. Fortunately, we were both super familiar with Rails. We were able to hit the ground running. And on top of just being familiar with it, the framework has been around a while. There's a mature ecosystem of gems out there. There's practically anything you might want to integrate with or accomplish. There's probably some library that's already been written that you can leverage and, and build on top of. So for us, choosing Rails as the foundation was a pretty obvious choice. For our front end, we chose React, also a familiar framework for us. And the one area that's a little uncommon is we did choose to use GraphQL as our API interface between the two. That came from previous experience as well, where we were often found ourselves wrestling with Redux and Reflux prior to that, and ultimately realizing the potential of Apollo and GraphQL for our front end. If you had to do it all over again, I've asked many people on the show this, would you have gone with GraphQL? I believe so. I think it's actually saved us quite a bit of time and allowed us to be much more expressive on the front end. So yeah, my short answer to that question is yes. Oh, it's so good to feel confident in the stack that you picked, right? <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, we are right now. I mean, if experience has taught me anything, it's just don't get too attached to it, especially as we start to scale. I can imagine us bringing on board frameworks, new technologies, maybe even new languages for certain applications. It really just depends on what the right tool is at that time for the, the problem at hand. That's really sound advice. This episode is brought to you by Hook Relay. So you want to add webhooks to your app, and after having worked with the webhooks that Stripe provides, you want yours to be as great as theirs. Well, that's as easy as sending a JSON payload to your customer's URL, right? We all know that it's not that simple. In other words, there's so much more than just post a JSON payload to get webhooks that your customers will love. The good news is Hook Relay has done all the hard work for you. If you are debugging a production issue or tracking down a specific webhook request, they provide you with all the details about your webhook interactions. It removes all the stress around failing and retrying services. It also lets you add a background job so you don't hold up your web requests and you avoid extra costs for a background worker if you're deploying to Heroku. I'm honestly so excited that they make it painless to resend a webhook. If you are as intrigued as me, check out hookrelay.dev and get started today. So how big is the engineering team currently? So we are four engineers full-time and then one contractor engineer. So I find the aspects of individual engineering culture so interesting. I mean, we know there are so many companies out there using Ruby on Rails and one of my missions on this podcast is to talk to a lot of them. So I'm curious, Nick, what is the defining aspect of the Flowdash engineering culture? Yeah, that's a great question. I think part of it comes from some of our values as a company overall. And the few that I want to just touch in on are that ownership mentality is extremely important at Flowdash. So no matter what your role is at the company, you are an owner in the business and we want to see the company be successful and you want to do everything you can in order to help the company accomplish its mission, even if it's outside of your job description. So a lot of our engineers do things outside of engineering. You know, we're doing uh, user interviews, we're doing user research, we're doing marketing, prospecting, we're doing sales, we're doing customer support. So I think just wearing these many hats and really embracing being an owner of the business is something that's pretty special about what we built right now. And then the second I wanna to touch on our value around defaulting to action. 
in previous roles, I've just found we often spend a lot of time talking about problems and debating solutions for months and months on end, and then ultimately coming to a conclusion. As an early stage startup, it's really important for us to move quickly, iterate quickly, and learn quickly by by putting things in front of our customers, gathering feedback, and adapting. So for that reason, we, when faced with you know a challenging decision, we default to action. We will try to do something quickly because it's by doing that we'll learn and be able to adapt from it. I love that. Now, moving over to you, Tanner, one thing that you had mentioned to me in the pre-show is that your customers deploy your app on-premise. So I want to dig into that. How does that work? Yeah, definitely. So it's really interesting on the technical side of things, packaging up a Rails app to be deployed on-premise, we found. And there are some challenges, too. I mean, just from an overall perspective, we package the app into a Docker image, and we basically give that image to our customers that want to deploy wherever they want to deploy. We have folks who are mostly using AWS, either as plain old EC2 or Kubernetes, or, or maybe they're deploying other apps on Aptable or even Heroku like us. But the nice thing about all these platforms is they play nicely with Docker. So in order to fit with all of those, Docker was the obvious choice for us for packaging. So one of the interesting challenges with that was it's not so easy to obfuscate Ruby code, which was really interesting finding, especially compared to maybe you're packaging up a a node app and you want to allow people to deploy it really easily without sort of like blocking access to it and exposing your source code if you're not an open source product. So yeah, with JavaScript, you have all that nice transpilation built in, but Ruby is a little more difficult. We were exploring Ruby encoder for that a little while, but you know, we've upgraded to Ruby three plus and so not quite support for that yet. So in order to address that, we're sort of giving licenses on an as needed basis for people to pull our image from a remote registry and deploy. So that was like one really interesting challenge. How do you deal with support? Support is really interesting because they're running on their own servers. We don't have all the nice monitoring, error monitoring or APM stuff built in like we do with our cloud hosted app. So there are some interesting things that we've landed on with customers. For example, we have with most customers a dedicated shared Slack channel. So when anything comes up, there's a bug or just a general question. That's usually the place where we collaborate. And kind of as Nick mentioned, ownership mentality means that engineers are in there answering those questions as they come up. But it's important for us to know how the app is performing based on different circumstances because one customer may be putting the app under significant load that we might not have seen before. So to address that, one good strategy has been a dedicated bug snack channel for that customer where it's both us and them in the same channel so that we can work together. One immediate case comes to mind where someone was migrating from an Aptable deployment to EKS, so Kubernetes. And there were some errors popping off in the bug snag channel. And so we quickly went over there and saw, oh, we have some network connectivity issues going on with the Kubernetes migration. 
how can we troubleshoot together? So that's been a nice way to handle support is in those shared channels. Wow. So you're not even doing reactive support. You're actually doing proactive support through those channels. Right. And it's great too, because as people sort of go through troubleshooting the migrations or trying to deploy on new platforms, then it helps us at the same time develop supporting documentation for our on-premise docs for other people who are going to need to deploy on any of these platforms moving forward. So it's been really great to get in the weeds with people so that we can write good docs and so that self-serve is just, it's just easier going forward. So can you explain to me how you develop features then? Do you develop a really customer requested feature in the cloud platform and then you port that over to your image and then you let your on-premise customers know that they need to update their images? Is that how you do it? Definitely. So one thing we've noticed is that our customers who deploy on-premise generally have a process for onboarding their users onto Flowdash. And so they kind of want to be in the loop when things are going to change, when new releases happen. So that's generally the process is we'll deploy something in the cloud application. And now that's in our source code, but there's a certain set of versions available in our registry image versions. So yeah, we have to be kind of careful with the timing because we tend to like to package up features that, you know, address this customer's problem or that customer's bug report and and let them know when that's been addressed. And yeah, it's an interesting challenge to know when to release a new version. We kind of wait for that threshold of this is going to help move the needle for them on their next deploy. So we'll package up sort of a summary and the summary is available in the app too for new features. And we also want them to know like what version they're on which helps us identify, okay, you ran into this bug. It's actually fixed in the next version. So just kind of check your version. But yeah, usually it's a quick summary Slack post into the shared channel. Here's what's relevant to you guys. Go ahead and and deploy and just pull the the latest image. I love that. It sounds like a lot of hand-to-hand combat, but I mean, it's that white glove service that I'm sure why your customers love you so much. So Tanner, you've hinted to me that what you did with the internal users dashboard is something that you're really proud of. And so I would just love to hear about the magical land where you can leave Active Admin. Oh man, yeah, it's a very magical land leaving Active Admin. (laughs) I mean, Active Admin is great when you need to do your ad hoc sort of crud on a record. But yeah, just to sort of paint a picture for the problem, Beforehand, we were using a combo of sort of active admin and simple Slack webhooks to get notified when somebody new signs up for Flowdash. And the reason why we want to know that is we want to know who is in the product, how they came there, what are they interested in, is this potentially a lead, what can we help with them, all this stuff. And that worked okay when there wasn't a lot of volume for signups. So somebody would say, hey, I'm on this, maybe like a Slack emoji reaction where a first name, last name, email signed up, that sort of a thing. And that worked okay at lower volume. But once it ramped up a little bit, it was hard to know who was on what. Maybe if somebody had a connection to that person, then they would be the one reaching out. But then we'd have like a double outreach situation. 
which isn't always bad, but kind of wanted a little bit more visibility of who was doing that personalized outreach for that product-led growth style. So Active Admin really didn't have the sort of assignment built-in collaboration or sort of data enrichment. Like I was saying, who is this person and is Flowdash likely to be relevant to them? We didn't get that in Active Admin. Also wanted a little bit more customization of the view, a little bit more data than a simple show user record and maybe associated records in Active Admin. So we're like, this is a great opportunity to dog food our own product. And so we ended up doing is Flowdash has a, a feature where you can basically sync with a database. So you can read from it and write back to it. Really this one we were just interested in reading. So basically just connected to our read replica, select stars, select first name, last name, email from users. And there we go. We've got all our users kind of in real time in Flowdash. So what that unblocked was a lot more customization in the view. So for example, we have a clear bit enrichment where, you know, we can grab somebody's LinkedIn really fast and jump over to LinkedIn, see if anybody's connected so we can do more of a personalized outreach. Or maybe we want to know what they did in the product and how onboarding went. So we'll do a fetch to our full story endpoint and just get some quick links to jump over and, and see if they ran into anything, any blockers in their session, or even just querying the database for associated interesting things. Like, did they complete the survey? what they say in the survey? What are they looking for? So all this stuff that was a little bit more rich than what we were getting before. And on top of it, all the assignment and some analytics too. So yeah, didn't really want to hack together some assignment logic and active admin if we already had it in our own product. That is so cool. I just love the engineer's approach to sales enrichment. And I love that you're dogfooding your own product. And you wrote a blog post about this, which of course we will link up in the show notes. Hi everyone, it's Brian, your co-host. I'd like to talk to you about something that is very near and dear to my heart. And that's the software consultancy I co-founded in 2001, Atlantis Technology. Some of the longtime listeners here may know Mirror was born out of Atlantis back in 2006 when we figured, let's try being Ruby engineers who recruit Ruby engineers. It was a unique idea that clicked and now has become my life's work. But while I've been growing Mirror for the past 15 years, Atlantis has continued to grow as well. Atlantis still specializes in Ruby on Rails software development and collaborates on some pretty meaningful projects. Here are a couple of my favorites. An interactive education tool to help elementary school students learn how to read. How cool is that, right? Second is a SaaS application for clinics and hospitals to treat patients remotely. So my point is the work we do is really meaningful and impactful to others. But the best part is the work gets done by great developers who also happen to be great people. Atlantis has always attracted egoless, empathetic engineers who love working together and we are actively seeking more remote engineers to help build the future for our clients. While I'm not doing the actual recruiting for Atlantis myself, since my time is so focused on Mirror clients, it'd be my privilege to connect you with our CTO and co-founder, John Collier, who after 19 years, I still describe as one of the most relentlessly positive human beings I know. If you'd like to meet John and hear more about working at Atlantis, just drop me an email at brian at mirrorplacement.com and I'll make an intro or 
apply directly at atlantistech.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. I am curious, Tanner, did you make any changes to Flowdash because of this project? Yeah, I think it informed a few different features off the top of my head. I'm thinking about Slack posts. So one thing that that we set up over time is sort of a snooze. Basically, the thing I wanted to do was, okay, I'm not sure this person is really high intent, but I want to know when they log back in. So let me click a button that says snooze and then let me know when they log back in. So we use Slack and the original feature was built to post to any channel, but I wanted the ability to post to whoever this was assigned to. So I think that helped inform the post message automation in Slack to the assigned to field from Flowdash, which in the case was me or whoever was on it. So that was one interesting one. Another was, I think, some changes to the full story sort of HTTP requests that I was talking about before. I wanted just to like click on something to watch their most recent sessions and see them all in that user view. So before we were just presenting basically raw JSON from the response, which just wasn't as, as ergonomic as clicking a link. So I think it kind of helped inform us adding a table view to that where we'll render clickable URLs as well, which has made my life easier in checking out those sessions. Well, that is what is important. And we've arrived at my favorite topic of the day, engineers being involved in sales. I'll be perfectly honest with you both. It wasn't until I joined Texas that I knew that GTM meant go to market. And so Nick, I'm going to start with you. How has being involved in sales helped you with being both an individual contributor and a leader for engineering? Yeah, for sure. I think one thing that kind of goes without saying, I think with any founding team, any of the founders, whether they're the business co-founder, technical product, what have you, just in the early days of building a company, I think everyone's involved in sales. Everyone's involved in talking to customers on a daily basis, if possible, at least many times a week. Everyone's involved in the messaging and then trying to find product market fit. You know, it's not something I had done previously. I actually thought that perhaps my experience building engineering teams and hiring candidates would lend itself well to doing sales. Turns out it's a completely different beast. Some of the skills transferable, many others that I had to learn. But I think one thing that's maybe a bit more unique at Flowdash is while you will usually see founders doing sales, founder-led sales, we chose to get the whole team involved. I think that comes back to just ownership mentality and really wanting everyone on the team to have kind of an intrinsic understanding of our customer, the problems they have day to day, and being able to make decisions quickly because they just have that tacit knowledge internally. Yeah, so I think it's been really helpful. I'm, I'm actually eager to hear Tanner's perspective since, you know, as an IC engineer, being asked to do sales, probably not what he signed up for when he joined the company. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I didn't have experience in sales or marketing or much beyond software engineering before Flowdash was an IC engineer. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I think part of it is, I think my personality is, is well suited to liking sales. It's a really interesting challenge. And I think a lot of engineers actually resonate with just sort of a, a natural curiosity to, to learn new things, learn new skills, figure out puzzles. And I kind of see sales as a different incarnation of that than engineering. So it's been a lot of fun. And 
One of the realities of being in a startup is the name of the game is finding that that fit. So there's been a transition for me from the last company I was at where there was a clear fit and it was a lot of let's build stuff. We already know this is stuff that people want. So let's build it. And new technology is very exciting and constantly learning. Since joining Flowdash, it's been more of a transition of being interested in figuring out what to build so that people will love that and also finding the right people who need what we're building. And I've just found that engineering gets, it gets like a level deeper when you kind of join the product, building the product with the people that are using the product and you start developing relationships with customers. So for me, it's really helped me develop sort of a, a sense of empathy and a better product instinct where after having a lot of conversations with customers or people interested, being able to find patterns for sort of common problems that can potentially be useful in making a solution that's, that's useful across a wide set of problems. So yeah, it's helped me as an engineer in many ways. Being an engineer though in sales has also been very useful, I would say, particularly because one of our primary stakeholders is, is an engineer. We're interested in getting engineers in the product because they seem to find a lot of value out of it. It's been really nice being able to hop on a call and speak familiar language. And I think I remember you, Brittany, actually talking on the earlier podcast about preparing a talk, something like we need someone technical on the call. Yes, I'm actually giving that talk at Sin City Ruby next month. So well done, Tanner. <laughs> Awesome. I love it. Well, hearing about that reminded me a lot about sales calls of Flowdash, where it's been really cool to not really have to skip a beat between talking about value proposition and figuring out a problem that somebody has and, and how we can help solve it to answering a question about how do we deploy this on premise or any sort of engineering related question, which it just kind of helps us reduce friction and move faster since we're talking to engineers. Have you had that really cool moment where you're talking to a prospect and they ask you, can you build this feature? And you go, I will build this feature. And they go, what? And you're like, I will build this feature. Yes, definitely. It's come up a couple of times with Slack and we have a Twilio integration too. So it's been so cool when somebody has a question about Slack. One of the things that I've been able to work on I'm like, huh, you know, I don't think that would be too hard to build. Like maybe we can put that in the backlog or actually you're talking to the right person because I worked on that and, and we can do that. That's perfect. That is so perfect. Well, starting with you, Tanner, how can listeners follow you? Yeah, I'm not super active on social media. LinkedIn would be the best place to get connected. Just Tanner Johnson, Flowdash, searching for that. You can also check me out on GitHub. The slug is just Tanner L. Johnson. Yeah, I think similar to Tanner, I'm not as active on social media. LinkedIn's probably the best bet. You can find me pretty easily, Nick Gervasi, Flowdash. As far as following the company, you can head on over to flowdash.com and learn about the product, sign up for a free trial and kick the tires a little bit. We've also been a lot more active on YouTube. So if you go on YouTube and search for Flowdash, you'll probably find several videos starring with Tanner and myself showcasing different features, how to build things on the platform and so on. 
Fantastic. Well, it was such a joy having both of you onto the show today, really proving that Rails is not dead. You still should be choosing it for new applications, successful ones even. And I really just love the whole concept around engineering-led sales. I think that needs to be broadcasted more, and I think more engineers should consider trying it. So thank you both so much, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Brittany. Really appreciate you having us. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.